Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Good day, folks. Well, welcome to the show. Now, as you probably know, I do quite like to stake a claim when it comes to things like dates and, of course, my maps. Okay, <laughs> what you'd like to do is you'd like to nerd out with dates and maps, mate. <laughs> but there are some occasions when I'm happy to be led by the nose and bow to Mikey's superior knowledge. And today is one such occasion because today we're talking food. Not just any old food, we're talking Vegemite. Mate, we're talking Vegemite. We're also talking advances in food in the 20th century. All right, okay. So now I've got to ask you straight up, Mikey, Vegemite, I always thought Aussies eat Vegemite, we eat Marmite. Is it as simple as that? Well, yes and no, mate. Um, and In fact, Marmite, which you know, I think of as, as very British, is actually a German invention. It's a guy mm. called Justus Freiherr von Liebig, who was a, um, a scientist. In fact, he also invented the Oxo stock cube yeah. and is known as the father of the fertiliser industry. Hence the taste. <laughs> he was uh, mucking around with, it, with a concentrate of brewer's yeast when he came across a thick, gooey, salty, spreadable taste sensation. Which it certainly is. Yes, mate. But it had to go to England to become Marmite. Right. It was first manufactured in 1902 by the Marmite Food Company, in a little town called Burton-upon-Trent in Staffordshire. Now, the mm-hmm. reason it was there, it was in the, you'd probably know more about this than me, that town is pretty well known for the amount of uh, brewing companies that are there. Oh, that's very much so, yeah. You know, in uh, all the great breweries along the Trent in Burton and just down the road in Nottingham as well. Um, and, of course, you know, during the wars, unfortunately, they used to say that you know, when the flying aces got shot down, by the Germans and didn't come back, that they'd gone for a Burton, gone for a Burton ale. So they get shot down and they still have to drink a warm, flat beer. That's not fair. Well, anyway, <laughs> the, 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 the people from Marmite took the brewer's yeast, they added some salt, which, of course, and some celery. And that's how we got mm. Marmite. But the name Marmite, mate, it's not actually British. No? That's it, derived from the French cooking uh, casserole dish, the Marmite. And ah. that explains the shape of the old jars. Mind you, they weren't jars when Marmite first came out in the market. They were actually made out of pottery. But that, ah. that, that, that shape, that's a Marmite, a French casserole dish. And, mm. you know, at first it was exported out to Australia and New Zealand. And was it a hit there too? No, not really, mate. <laughs> but here's the thing. And this is the first time we're going to talk about a global conflict. I'm talking about World War I. Now, the mm-hmm. British Medical Association decided there was enough you know, riboflavin and, and vitamins in Marmite that it became part of the British soldiers' ration packs. Mm-hmm. And Australian diggers must have got a bit of a taste for the stuff. So right. when they come back to Australia, they like the Marmite, but then what happens? In 1919, there was a disruption of imports from Marmite in England, 
And that's sort of how Vegemite gets born. A guy called Fred Walker from Fred Walker & Co. Now, he's got a scientist called Cyril Callister. Now, Cyril, he's in Melbourne. They go along to the Carlton and United breweries. And they get some leftover yeast. Mm-hmm. Now, they add salt and celery and onion extract. And the legend that we know as Vegemite was born. And the rest is history. Well, not quite, mate. And in fact, the whole naming thing is, is uh, embroiled in controversy. They said there was a competition to come up with a name. Walker reckoned his daughter came up with the name Vegemite, but it does sound a little suspiciously like Marmite. <laughs> okay, so, but now they've got, the, they've got the name, they've got the food. Now it's all sorted. No, mate, it, it completely fails. <laughs> in fact, by the time it launches in 1923, Marmite was back on the Australian market. In fact, things were so dire that Vegemite made in 1928 probably the dumbest marketing move ever made in Australian mm-hmm. culinary history. They changed the name from Vegemite to Parwill. Parwill? Yeah, well, think about it. Their slogan was, Ma might, but Pa will. Pa will. Ooh, yeah, it dear. was an absolute shocker. Um, <laughs> ab- complete failure. Look, in 1935, it reverted back to Vegemite, but, but it's, it still flounders. There was some success, though, when, uh, when Walker partnered up with uh, Kraft Cheese from America and they did some cheese and Vegemite giveaways. Well, I know my kids would have liked that. So, so now, surely, it's got to take off. No. Right? But then World War II comes along, and now this is the game changer. Marmite becomes impossible to get into Australia. Also, too, the British Medical Association has given Vegemite the tick of approval the same way they gave Marmite the tick of approval in World War I. So Australian diggers get a taste for Vegemite. So by the end of the 1940s, out of every 10 Australian homes, nine actually had a jar of Vegemite. <laughs> Okay, folks, so we're talking Mikey's pet subject, food and food history, and the history behind many of the staples that we eat today. Now, I must admit, I've always liked my favourite food history story was the old Churchill in World War II, making sure that fish and chips, <laughs> being central to the British morale, they were the only food that never got rationed. Yeah, that's yeah, <laughs> how quintessentially British they were, and still are. Well, yes, mate, but... Quite frankly, the origin of battered fish in England goes to the Western Sephardic Jewish community who'd been living there since the middle of the 17th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, when it comes to where did we get chips from, well, the Belgians like to claim they did it. The French like to say they did it. Look, that's an argument you really don't want to get involved in. But, (laughs) But you're right, actually. Chips are so quintessentially British that by the time of Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, there's this quote. Husky chips of potato fried with some reluctant drops of oil. Oh, yeah. I, I, can, I can almost taste them now, Mike. And I must admit, I was once asked on a show, yeah. what was my biggest disappointment in life? And I, I had to say, bad chips. There's nothing worse than when they're poorly cooked, but nothing better when they're nice and crispy. And the guy we can thank for that was another Jewish immigrant called Joseph Marlin, who opened a London shop in the East End in 1860. And this is where fish and chips finally met each other. Even so, he still advertised that the fish was being fried in the Jewish fashion. But you're right. By World War One, fish and chips, or uh, chippies as you call them, mm-hmm. are all over Britain. So during World War One, the, the government tries really hard to keep the supply of fish and chips up. And yes, you are right. In World War Two, 
Churchill thought them so important they were the only food never rationed. In fact, he used to call them the good companions. Mind you, though, by the end of the war, just the price of the raw materials of just getting fish into a, into a chippy shop made them almost prohibitively expensive. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you what, Mikey, you don't want to know how much a decent portion of chips cost back home these days, but there you go. Well, actually, mate, while we're talking World War II and culinary history, that's when we get US troops taking American food traditions global. Oh, yeah, of course, you got your Coca-Cola, your, your Wrigley's chewing gum, haven't you? Yes, but mate, also too, one of the most insidious inventions of mankind. Instant, Go on. Instant coffee. Actually, the first thing that looked like something we'd call instant coffee was, was a British invention called Coffee Compound, which was patented back in 1771. It didn't really take off. Now, during the American Civil War, Union soldiers received experimental cakes of coffee which is sort of like an instant coffee, which was hideous, but not as bad as the other thing they got in their rations, which was an evil coffee syrup. But if you want to know where, like, what we call instant coffee comes from, you've got to think the Kiwis for that, and a chemist called David Strang, which is strange without an E. He was the one who came up with the whole sort of freeze-drying, hot air, and then he, um, well, he marketed it under the rather unfortunate name of Strang Coffee, and it didn't quite... Strang coffee, yeah, I can imagine that not taking off. No, but in 1901, you get a guy called Dr. Caddo in Chicago, and he creates the first true instant coffee, which is before the First World War. And isn't it in the First World War, that's when you, you get that phrase, isn't it, about the US troops having a cup of George? Yes, mate, and that's because the company that made it was the George Washington Coffee Company, so they'd ask mm -hmm. for a cup of George. But by World War Two there was a new player in the instant coffee game. Nescafe. Ah, yes. So owned by Nestle. Now, it had access to the Brazilian fields. The Brazilians had a glut of coffee beans. So they said to Nestle, can you do something with this? Well, they have a Swiss chemist called Max Mortengala. Now, mm -hmm. Max actually comes up with a drinkable instant coffee, pretty much the Nescafe we know today. Right. But think about this. It's World War II. You've got the Brazilian fields, you've got the headquarters in Switzerland, and you've got the factories in the US. So they can keep production going pretty much, apart from you know, transportation is always a worry. Mm -hmm. So by the end of the Second World War, Nescafe is all over the world. And at one point, a million cases of coffee are made just for the military in the US alone. Uh, wow, a million cases. <laughs> so what you're saying is, you know, in Apocalypse Now, it should really be, I love the smell of Nescafe in the morning. You never do that again, mate. But you're yeah. right. By the end of World War II, instant coffee has spread throughout the world, much to everyone's regret. Now, another weird thing that comes from World War II and instant food is the packet cake. Now, you've made packet cakes for your kids' birthdays. Mm, well, I make real cakes, but yeah, I know what you mean. Oh, don't brag, mate. Don't be okay, my mum used to use packet cakes. See, here's the thing. That same sort of you know, dehydrating, rehydrating technology that the Americans perfected during World War II comes up with the packet cake. And they release it after the war, and they think it's going to be a massive hit. But no one buys it. And mm. here's the thing. They bring in some madman-style marketing gurus and what they realise is that just adding water to the packet mix was not giving home cooks a sense of ownership of making a cake for their loved ones. Mm -hmm. So what they did was they took out the powdered egg, and here's where they came up with the genius idea. Add a real egg. So that's where the phrase, just add an egg, came from. And that mm -hmm. gave the home cooks a sense of the, 
they were actually baking. And as such, they managed to save kids' birthdays from the 1950s up till now. And mate, we can't mention the Americans and World War II and, and war food without mentioning spam. <laughs> spam, 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 spam. But hang on, Mikey. Wasn't it Napoleon that gave the world tinned meat, tinned food? Well, yes, Paul, but you're only halfway there. All right, so we started out talking about Vegemite, but those of you who remember our donut last season's episode won't be surprised that Mikey soon got us onto food and the military. So here's our final teaser, Napoleon and tinned food. Now, before we start, Mikey, I hope you're not going to just trot out the old an army marches on its stomach line because that I've read there's actually a strong chance that actually might have been Frederick the Great's quote rather than the little fella. But Yeah, well, actually, mate, Napoleon probably used it. But as you know, armies have been trying to preserve food since there's been armies. And you know, that, you know, that means smoking, it means salting, it means drying. And Napoleon didn't like the taste of those salted dried foods. So in the late 1700s, he actually announced a 12,000 franc prize for someone who could come up with a better way of getting food to the soldiers. Mm. Enter French confectioner Nicolas Apert. Now, in 1795, he starts putting food in glass jars, sealed with wax and wire. He then boils the food in the jar until he thinks it's cooked. Now, this is 50 years before Louis Pasteur and his experiments, but he stumbled upon pasteurisation. Mm. And mate, it works. In fact, a French journalist, a guy called Grimond de la Reniere, said, In each bottle, and at a small expense, is a glorious sweetness that recalls the month of May in the depths of winter. <laughs> right. So the whole thing about canning, it actually starts in jars, but the, the French Navy started using his jars, and in 1810, he actually ends up winning the 12,000 francs award. And that, that company that he started, it was still going up until 1933. Right, but the canning process, Mikey, that, 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 did, that came from Britain, didn't it? Wasn't it Duncan and Hall? Well, there was a Frenchman involved, a guy called Philippe de Girard, but you're right, it was the industrial might of Great Britain that really brought things to the next level. Uh, Brian Duncan and John Hall opened the first large-scale cannery. This mm. is in England, and by 1813, they were supplying the British Army all over the vast empire. Including Australia? Actually, mate, particularly Australia, but not coming in, going out. I mean, long before gold and wheat were our big exports, we had our first big export boom in canned meat. Mm. It all starts out with the English immigrant, a guy called Sizar Elliott. Now, he was the sort of import-export kind of guy. In the early 1840s, Australia was experiencing something of a livestock glut. Mm. <laughs> in fact, they were boiling sheep down to make tallow for candles because they couldn't flog them. So he's in Sydney, right? And he thinks, hey, hang on, maybe we can can the food here and send it back to the old country. So what he starts doing is he starts getting excess mutton and putting it in, in up to five kilo tins, which he then boils in whale oil and, in fact, wins a few medals at the Sydney show. But it was two brothers in Newcastle, William and Henry Dangar, that really kicked it on a bit. They canned soups, beef, mutton and mock turtle, which is just basically bits of beef you don't want to know about, in cans, which ranged between half a kilo to five kilos, and exported these back to England. So what stopped them? Did, did they run out of can openers? Well, actually, mate, the can opener is not invented up until 1855 when a guy called Robert Yates, an Englishman, invents the can opener. 
up until then, the instructions said, use a hammer and a chisel. <laughs> but, mate, if you've got a five-kilo tin of mutton, you're probably going to need a hammer and a chisel anyway. Now, what actually brought them undone was the gold rush mm. because the price of meat went up and it was no longer financially viable to tin it and send it back to England. Then something happens in 1865. In England, there's a mysterious cattle disease. Oh, mud cow disease. Well, no one knows what it is, but let's face it, you know, it was a boon to Australia. In stepped the Melbourne Meat Preserving Company and the Australian Meat Company in northern New South Wales. Now, between 1869 and 1879, Australia exported some 60,000 metric tonnes of preserved meat back to England. Beef, rabbit, but mostly mutton. So, so long before Australia was riding on the sheep's back, we were putting the sheep's back in tins and sending it back to the mother country. So that, of course, is how in, in World War One we've got all the Tommies eating the good old John Bull's bully beef, right? Mate, yes, I, I did think it was named after the great British character John Bull, you know, bully beef. But actually it comes from the French term bully, bouillon, to boil, because the tins were boiled before they were shipped out. You know, it's a bit like a lot of things in uh, this show that you think are British, like Marmite, invented by the French, or fish and chips, which actually arrived with Jewish immigrants. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Can I just say, folks, he's always like this when we go out for dinner. (laughs) Oh, and mate, I can't wait for lockdown to be over so we can go out for a feed again. (laughs) All right. Well, that's it for the episode. Uh, If you've got any more tasty tidbits for us. Or if you want to weigh in on the whole Marmite versus Vegemite debate, please feel welcome. And let's not forget the absolute debacle that was Vegemite (laughs) 2.0. That's right. And if anyone's got any recipes for bully beef, we'd love to know. Or leftover spam. All right, folks, there you go. Drop us a line on all your social media using the handle at and the rest is hist. And the rest is hist. And you can find all that stuff in the show notes. Okay, and if you like the podcast, don't forget to like, subscribe and comment, you know, whichever platforms you usually use. Which means we're on to the next episode. And we're off to somewhere I haven't been to for a very long time. In fact, not since my honeymoon. The land of the rising sun. (laughs) 